We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hello, welcome to We the Deplorables podcast, the place for faith, family, and freedom. And we are going to continue our discussion today of the Christian left. We're going to examine it, we're going to button it up, and then be on the lookout for next week's episode. I'm going to break down two events that are extremely significant uh, in our culture for um, legal purposes, political purposes. Uh, the impact of uh, these two events cannot be understated. Uh, it is the January 6th event as well as the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial. And I want to let you guys know that political persecution is here. And it is going to be increasingly important that we as believers take our rightful place in society, in our culture, and do what needs to be done in fact, I don't know if a lot of you know that the Revolutionary War actually started in the lawn of a church, Jonas Clark's uh, church to be exact, and uh, he and 70 of his congregation confronted the British. The British fired upon them first, and it was a shot that was heard around the world. And so the church has a very important part to play in this country. It has from the beginning, and it will have uh, a tremendous impact in saving this country. So we're going to examine these uh, cases, these episodes, and see how we can break them down uh, and get some lessons. But I want to start today's message. uh, Well, it's not really a message, but I mean, I guess you could say it is. uh, Today's episode from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We're going to break this down and we're going to see how it applies. There'll be a lot of scripture actually in this episode, uh, just to give you a heads up. But Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haunty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Okay, so when you read that, you're like, oh my goodness, yes, that is society today all the way, all the way. Well, here's the next statement that he makes. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people turn away. Okay. So this is an interesting statement by Paul, 
because you would think that he is describing, like I said, society in general. But we see that actually what's happening here is he is giving a clear reference to the state of the church because the world has always been this way. Okay, the world has always done these things. But the having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof is a reference to the people of God. These are people that have religious, um, I guess you could say actually religiosity. They have structures, they have things that they do that are religious, and yet the power of God for transformation is not there. It is uh, absent. And so Paul is telling us, it doesn't matter how many times people use the name of Jesus, how many times they go to church, how much they tithe, uh, even if they give their bodies uh, to be burned, if they do not allow the power of God to transform them into the image of Christ as much as possible on this earth, and they are practicing the things proceeding above, you need to stay away because they are stiff-arming the power of God for transformation. In fact, the word perilous means mentally distressing, okay? And that's one of the tactics that the Antichrist will use against the people of God in uh, the end of the age. And so it's this distressing, sin-filled state among the people of God, which Malachi 3, 17 through 18 alludes to where there's a time coming where we're going to once again be able to discern between the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we've been reading a lot from the book, The Christian Left by Lucas Miles. And I want to uh, get you some of the disturbing trends in America, especially. That's only a nation I can speak to. Now, this is a 2018 Gallup poll. And uh, the poll asked Americans to self-report their views on abortion, whether they were pro-choice or pro-life. Christians as a whole reported 40% pro-choice. 56% pro-life. Catholics reported nearly identical results. The only significant variation within the study was demonstrated by those who claimed weekly church attendance, where the numbers shifted to only 20% pro-choice and an overwhelming 75% pro-life. Now, this shows the power of education, being in church, hearing the word. These are all very important things. And so whenever that was not the case, you have 40% that actually believe it's okay to rip a baby to shreds or to burn it using chemicals and kill it in the womb. It is flabbergasting. But those that are in the word that go to church, that dropped down to 20%. And, you know, while I have sympathy for people that have been raped, I also have seen many children that were adopted that were rape babies that were wonderful, brilliant, uh, incredible people. And so I want to give a, you know, just a, a thank you to those, uh, you know, women out there that were raped. And instead of choosing to kill that baby who had nothing at all to do with what happened to them, they instead carried the baby to full term so it could be adopted by parents that desire and long to have a child. And so uh, I am not for abortion, even in rape cases. Um, I, I am pro-life uh, to the core. 
And so the degree, he continues, of confusion that exists among Christians today regarding such a simple moral dilemma is evidence that the church has not adequately addressed the complexities of the Christian life and has not taught their congregants to sort through biblical principles in their own hearts. And, and that goes back to, can the Word address modern-day issues? Absolutely. Is the Word of God inspired by God? Absolutely. These things must be taught. Now, you go even further. Listen to this. Clergy gathered outside of an abortion clinic in Bethesda, Pennsylvania. There were no signs in their hands, no protests on their lips. They were there for one reason only, to pray. But not for the women to change their minds, nor for the innocent children whose lives were, were violently lost. This time it was different. They were there to pray for the safety of the doctors as they helped women live out their faith through performing late-term abortions. They said, we sanctify this space and we honor this as holy, prayed one minister. Another Baptist pastor defended his pro-abortion stance by saying the Supreme Court affirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion, but before the Supreme Court did it, God had already done it because it affirms a woman's moral agency. Performing late-term abortion is holy and God affirms a woman's moral agency to kill her child. If you're not shocked by this, you should be. And I wish I could tell you that the Bethesda event is an isolated one, but it seems instead that it is part of the growing wave of believing leftists who see abortion as a way to minister to the needs of women who are hurting. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely demonic and evil, and I can guarantee you it is a worship of a different God. It is not the worship of the God of life. Jesus said, I come to give abundant life. The devil the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So anything that's death-related, anything that's killing, is of the devil. So killing a baby in the womb is of the devil. Now, if you've had done that in the past, you've repented, or maybe you weren't born again yet, there's no condemnation. But if you are someone that's listening to this podcast, and you think that God supports abortion, and that's holy, you probably need to get saved. You need to get spirit-filled the very least, you need to have some demons cast out. Dr. Willie Parker, he's an itinerant abortion physician. He travels to states with limited clinics and abortion facilities. He's well known for his view. He says, I remain a follower of Jesus, and I believe that as an abortion provider, I'm doing God's work. Are you kidding me? He even wrote a book that says, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. He defended himself by saying, Well, it's only shocking if you compartmentalize your life and say that there are things that place people beyond the need for help and compassion. And so when I say what it means to be concerned about others and fulfillment of a passage in Christian text that says, and notice he says a passion in Christian text. Are you referring to the Bible, sir? First, love God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. It is difficult to profess love for God whom you've never seen and to be oblivious to the need of your neighbor. Oh, I see. So we're supposed to agree that the need of a neighbor is to kill their baby in the womb? I mean, these people are not Christian, and they are twisting Scripture to fulfill demonic practices and also operating un under unsanctified compassion and unsanctified mercy. Mercy should never be at the expense of a baby, ever. And so from this context, you see that, you know, it sounds spiritual, it sounds moral, maybe even a little pastoral, but he's dismembering Innocent children in the womb that can feel the pain and the terror. 
Now, you may think, well, this is extreme. It's isolated. You shouldn't, you know, be getting all upset over this. This doesn't happen a lot. Well, there's 20 different denominations according to the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation. Did you notice Freedom From Religion Foundation? That agree that the Bible does not condemn abortion and that abortion should continue to be legal. American Baptist churches in the United States, American Ethical uh, Union, American Friends Quaker Servant, Service Committee, American Jewish Congress, Catholics for Free Choice, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, Episcopal Church, Evangelicals for Free Choice, Lutheran Women's Caucus, Moravian Church in America, Northern Province, Presbyterian Church, USA, Religious Coalition of Reproductive Choice, Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ for the Latter-day Saints, Union of American Hebrew Congregations, Unitarian Universalist Association, American Church or United Church of Christ, United Methodist Church, United Synagogue of America, Women's Caucus Church of the Brethren, and YMCA. Now, obviously, this is far from a picture of mainstream Christianity, but it's growing evidence that people are losing their moral compass based in the Word of God. Any Christian to think that abortion is is okay is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. I can't understand it. There's um, um, some people that take this uh, scripture in Luke 23, 29, For behold, the days are coming, which they'll say, Blessed are the barren in the womb that never bear, and the paps that never gave suck. To use that as a proof text that abortion... Is scripturally endorsed according to John Gill's expedition or exposition of the Bible commentary. Jesus's words weren't in any way a condemning of abortion, but rather a statement of sympathy for those that would soon face Titus's besiegement. One rich and noble woman, whose name was Mary, the daughter of Eleazar, was stripped of all she had by the seditious. She killed her own child and dressed it and ate part of it, and everyone looked with horror upon it and with the same compassion as if they'd done it themselves. And then might these words be say, blessed are the barren and those who did not uh, uh, bear children instead of you know, being starved and having to eat their own kids. But, I mean, then you got even, and I've never understood this, the Jewish viewpoint, they don't view life until that baby takes breath. And they base it under the idea that Adam did not become a living soul until he was, uh, you know, breathed into his nostrils by God, but he was a man that was formed complete. He never existed in the womb. So God formed him from clay, therefore he breathed life in him. Every baby that is conceived already possesses a living soul. So you can't even take that. But this is the kind of stuff, guys, that people are believing, and it's ridiculous. The issue of abortion is the canary in the cage signaling a great departure from God. But where did this departure actually start? Well, let's look over in Romans. And I thought this was a brilliant point that he made. And so we're going to read these passages and then we're going to break it down ourselves. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I want you to see if you can hear some of the things that are a precursor to such debased thinking. In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That could actually uh, be a lot of our government media right now. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godheads, that they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him, or they were aware of God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, here we have honor and gratitude is very important because it says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. The word uh, honor in this uh, text is to honor and to respect. And it's used, it was used to, it used to exist in this country even among unbelievers. Even among the most unbelieving, among our founding fathers, recognize the virtues of Christianity. Benjamin Franklin could be considered one of the least religious of all of the founding fathers. And early in his life, he called himself a deist. He had loose sexual morals. And by the way, a deist is a person who believes that there is a God, but he does not interfere in the affairs of man. But later, he actually became a good friend of Reverend George Whitfield, who led the First Great Awakening. And as he aged, he became even more outspoken in favor of Christianity. And so here's one of the things, like he told Thomas Paine not to write his uh, anti-religious book. In fact, he told him to burn it and don't let anybody uh, uh, ever see it. Uh, he said, quote, "...and the excellency of the Christian religion above all others," because he studied all kinds of different religions, and he decided that uh, Christianity was one of the most purest of all of them. He said, um, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you uh, particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, it is the best the world has ever seen or is like to see. Uh, he felt that religion was very important. In fact, when they got together to create the Constitution, they uh, were fussing and fighting over it. And he said, hey, guys, have we uh, prayed? I mean, during the war, we prayed. We had regular prayer as a government. And here we are uh, trying to do something uh, that's very, very important to the history of this nation, to posterity. We've not even considered praying. So it was Franklin's idea to have clergy uh, and chaplains pray every day before they began their deliberations and their strategizing. And that actually produced a peace, which then we were able to get the United States Constitution written and ratified by nine states. Well, actually all of them, uh, four of them had some uh, concerns and wanted the Bill of Rights. I mean, it, it just, you know, obviously glorifying him can go deeper into praising him, but the idea of respecting God. I remember when I was a kid, you respected God. You respected church. It was off limits. You did not talk bad about him. You did not talk bad about churches. You didn't go and steal from churches. You didn't burn churches. You didn't, you know, uh, in any way harm uh, religion. And that's just not the case anymore. Now, another definition of respect is to, quote, influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. 
Respecting God is baseline. That should grow, and it should turn into adoration, praise, and glorification. But I remember respect for him was taught in schools. In fact, it sparked a God consciousness. I wanted to know who was this God that we were pledging allegiance to and to the flag. You know, I remember the Thanksgiving stories and giving praise and thanksgiving to God. I remember those things, and it made me want to know him. And so we've lost respect for God. And I remember when it happened. I was in my 20s, and respect for God just began to be diminished in a very drastic way. Gratitude is a second starting point of a departure. It goes back to the second Timothy three that states that men will be unthankful. My husband works at a nonprofit and they help clothe people and feed them. And I cannot tell you how many times he's told me that someone would come in to get clothes, maybe on a day they weren't distributing them. Cause there's a lot that goes into that. That I had no idea. Or maybe they weren't giving out food due to COVID concerns, things like that. And, uh, among the staff and people would say F you then. I mean, these are people that are coming to a Christian organization to be fed and get clothes. And when you say no, they, they tell you F you. I mean, what's wrong with people? That's what I'm talking about. There's no thankfulness. It's like a demand. It's like you owe me food and clothing. And so, of course, the pre-saved will do it. But for us as believers, it's very important to understand that gratitude is a cultivated skill and practice. And gratitude is something sorely missing from a, you know many households today. I remember I taught my son to say thank you. And instead, entitlement has replaced working hard and being thankful for your blessings. So while these are good things, actually, Paul goes even further and points out the seed of dishonor and ingratitude, and that is a failure to recognize God as the creator. It states he is plainly visible as a creator, implying that all you have to do is look around you and you'll know God exists. I mean, to think that the Big Bang did all of this, have you ever said just insects and how they look and their spots and their stripes and all of those things and how they actually function? Uh, All you have to do is look around. And so to think that the Big Bang did this or that amoeba turned into all of this is just quite frankly dumb. So removing God as creator from society also removes the sanctity of life. And it reduces the conception of a baby to a clump of cells. Yet even science disproves that. But it's ignored because it doesn't fit the political agenda. And where there is no sanctity of life, there is a glorification of death. Without an understanding of a creator, a respect for him and gratitude, the individual and eventually society is left to vain imaginations, which leads to idolatry and sexual deviance and perversion and increased blindness. Let me read to you some statistics on page 124 of our book. It's the porn phenomenon. In 2016, a study was released by the Barna Group, Barna Group called the porn phenomenon, and it surveyed more than 3,000 individuals, including pastors and youth pastors, and found that nearly half of young adults say they came across porn at least once a week, even though they weren't seeking out. Some of the main takeaways from the study were 57% of pastors and 64% of youth pastors admit they either struggle or had have struggled with porn. 56% of women under the age of 25 admit to seeking out porn and one-third admit to seeking it out at least monthly. More people today view not recycling as worse than looking at pornography. 
And practicing Christians are two times as likely to experience guilt over looking at it. And most um, Americans don't believe that full nudity qualifies as pornography. It's incredible. Um, let's see. Read Luther's quote. All right. So uh, this is... Um, Oh, let's see. Who is this? Let me get you the name. I think it's the guy that did the 99 Thesis. Okay. Let's see. Where is it? Hmm. Well, I'm assuming he's referring to Martin Luther, and he describes um, a stage called blindness, warning that the man of necessity becomes blind in his whole feeling and thinking as this is the only way, other than kneeling at the cross, to justify his ego and worth. In a sad reality, it seems it's easier for a man to change his view of God than to honestly assess his corrupted view of self. Luther continues, Ingratitude and love of vanity pervert man so thoroughly that it refuses to be reproved, for now he thinks his conduct is good and pleasing to God. He now imagines that he is worshiping a merciful God, whereas in reality he has none. Indeed, he worships his own figment of reason more devoutly than the living God. Whereas the religious legalist, this is uh, the author Lucas Miles, records uh, moral deviations such as abortion, sexual morality, and transgenderism as unholy and against God, and of course they are, the real danger, according to Luther, is not only in the behavior, but more so in sin's ability to corrupt the mind, leading one to conclude that God approves of such things. Dr. James B. Richards reveals the real reason our minds become so impossible to this deception or so susceptible to this deception in his book, Breaking the Cycle. He writes, before we commit sin, we must first come to the place where we believe that sin will meet a need in our life. We don't commit sin to create problems. We commit sin to solve problems. The emotional state that so distorts our thinking is simply the state of lack. If this is true, then vain imaginations are simply attempts to try to solve a problem either apart from God or in a way that God does not intend. That's why you'll hear things like, I wasn't ready to be a mother. I didn't know how I could afford a baby right now. These will be reasons that are justified in killing that baby. Or maybe there's no real moral reason why abortion is every wrong, ever wrong. Or maybe I was born this way. Uh, God told me to divorce my wife. God told me to marry my secretary. Whatever it is, we all create reasons uh, to dismiss sin. And we also think that uh, as long as, you know, um, uh, we have these reasons that God must be okay with it. Like I've heard, well, you know, it's fine to live with uh, my boyfriend or my girlfriend and even to have sex before marriage because we're married in spirit anyway. No, no, you're not. Actually, there is an entire process that needs to occur that if you took the time to study biblical Hebrew marriages, you would understand that's not how it works. And so we have all of these ridiculous things. And then he goes on to say, in Genesis 3, the Bible tells the story of the fall of man. Long before the Trojan horse of Epius was used to ransack the ancient city of Troy, Lucifer, a guardian cherub, stole the form of another creature, a cunning serpent, in order to enter Eden unnoticed and seduce Adam and uh, his wife. Immediately the two, filled with shame, 
surrendered their divine likeness for a fallen alternative. Now, what you see that happens afterwards is everyone blames everybody. Um, Adam blames his wife. The wife blames the serpent. Notice at Adam, arguably the progenitor of leftist theology, immediately shrugs off all personal responsibility with an excuse, I was naked, and then even blames God for giving him the woman who made him commit the offense in the first place. Hidden within statements like these is a leftist theological undertone that claims, I'm not at fault, God made me like this. It's what I call playing the God card. And while it was born, born in Eden, it's still used today and in frightening ways. In 2004, a woman was charged with two counts of murder for smashing two of her three children's heads with a rock, claiming God told her to kill her sons. In 2017, a Missouri tractor-trailer driver accused of deliberately wrecking into a pickup truck and killing two people told police that God told me to do it and later said, God wants you to shoot me. God wants you to kill me. In 2018, Pope Francis allegedly told a man sexually abused by the church who later became homosexual, that does not matter. God made you like this. God loves you like this. In 2019, a man, Texas man, allegedly killed his girlfriend and their nine-month-old infant, claiming God instructed him to do so. In 2010, a man in Carlisle, Ohio, was accused of torturing a goat to death, damaging property, and stealing a truck all while naked. His reason, God told me to. Now, of course, these situations are, you know, maybe more isolated, more uh, sensational, and thankfully they're not part of our everyday lives. But there is um, a large percentage of the population, especially those who are in church, who proudly play the God card in order to escape repercussions and responsibility and even judgments uh, from their actions. Like I was saying, you know, I really feel that God is okay with my lifestyle. I know it might not seem right to you, but God showed me this is what he wants. If God made me like this, and I know he won't judge me for it. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but at least it's not as bad as I'm a good person. Insert behavior doesn't change that. Don't believe that part of the Bible is for today. Don't you think God would rather me look at pornography than have an affair? I mean, these are the things that we do to justify sin, and these are arguments that the uh, left is propagating among supposed believers. Now, on the other hand, I want to go to uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to judge, for whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? And so here we have to be careful that we consider ourselves lest we fall. You cannot stand in judgment of another for the very things that you do. God will not allow that. Okay? But what I want to really point out is it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Here's an example. Homosexuality, lesbianism, is a sin. And it's not something that should be accepted by believers. However, the church also has not displayed kindness toward those battling same-sex sins, effectively shutting the door of influence to help them. So now the transgender theology 
has taken root so deeply that doctors are literally changing the physical sex of patients because where else are they going to go for kindness? Where else are they going to go? And by the way, you may change the outward body, but the brain is still male or female. And that's just science. So kindness is not excusing sin. But here's how Paul said to deal with it and to judge it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse uh, 9 and go to 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now he's uh, referring to the fact that they he just discovered that there's a man that is sleeping with either his stepmom or his mom. He just said your dad's wife. So a lot of people assume it's his stepmom. And so he's addressing this. And he said, but I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. So he's saying, I didn't tell you to avoid sinners that are doing these things. That's the case. You wouldn't even be able to live in the world. But then he says, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul is confining our judgment to within our church walls. Judgment is reserved for those inside the ecclesia or the church. So we can see that judging those that are outside or in the wrong spirits actually pride, which can be really hard for me to hear because, you know, man, the people are doing some crazy stuff out there, but they're sinners. That's what they're going to do. And humility is seen in praying for our leaders, even though they're tearing this country down, which oof, that's so tough for me. Here's the thing. Any reaction to error produces more error. Attempting to corrupt, correct unkind and unloving reactions to same-sex sin by throwing out the Bible and embracing it wholeheartedly is just as much error as attacking people who don't know God for those sins. Showing compassion for unplanned pregnant women by condoning and twisting the scriptures, saying that abortion is the answer, is error. Unsanctified compassion is never the answer. On the other hand, refusing to speak truth concerning these things for fear of being called judgmental is also error. So what's the answer? And whose side is God on? Well, I like this. He gives several answers. To consider, he says, Paul expected people to reject the truth. One of the things that always surprises me is how shocked the right becomes when people fall into error. <laughs> Paul expected it and told Timothy to do the same. He knew people would abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, even things taught by demons. Recognizing this from the onset helps to prevent us from becoming angry with those on the left and reminds us instead of the importance of keeping our heart on the things of God. Number two, thanksgiving. Paul instructs Timothy to see Thanksgiving as a litmus test of whether one is walking in the truth or not. And I think that's very interesting. The opposite of Thanksgiving is entitlement. The minute we think that God owes us something, anger will rise up. Number three, avoid fake news. It's important to recognize that false messaging originates from sources on the right and on the left. We are called to walk in wisdom, and I completely agree. Number four, remain eternity-minded. Perhaps the, one of the greatest indicators of faith in Christ is the ability to have hope in both the present life and the life to come, 
even in the midst of persecution and turmoil in the here and now. Number five, set an example. Number six, devote yourself to scripture. The greatest investment you can ever make in your life is depositing the word of God in your heart. Now, this is absolutely true because we are in a new dark ages because of the lack of diligent study. Number seven, be diligent. The last thing Paul tells Timothy is to be diligent in all of these principles so that everyone may see your progress. One of the greatest truths apprehend from Paul's words to Timothy is that our hearts don't remain stationary. People may begin their journey with the greatest intentions, but if they exchange God's word for lifeless traditions, fake news, or godless myths, they will ultimately go astray. Whose side is God on? For me, the crucial issue for voting is abortion. If a a Republican ran and was for abortion and a Democrat ran and wasn't, I'd vote Democrat. Now, even so, it has to be acknowledged the left is not the same Democrat party of old. It's transformed over decades into a party that's either sympathetic or outright supportive of socialism. Well, actually, you could go back pretty far and see that the left, the Democrat party, has always been kind of radical. But abortion is the key issue. A Christian should not vote for any government leader that believes in abortion. When you look back at the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was surrounded by people who believed that slavery was from God and people who believed that it wasn't. Both of them claimed that they were on, that God was on their side. Listen to how Lincoln addressed the subject at his second inaugural address. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that if neither have been answered fully, the Almighty has his own purposes. Now you have Joshua, who was nearing Jericho, and the angel of the Lord showed up, and he immediately said, Whose side are you on? And of course, the angel of the Lord said, I'm on God's side. So that's what's most important. Is God on the side of abortion? No. Therefore, anybody, state, local, county, or federal that supports abortion is not on God's side, and God is not on that individual's side. Public opinion alone is no better at discerning truth than the individuals who make it up. While Jesus attracted crowds and gained a significant number of followers, many of them left as quickly as they came. In a world where we are often judged how blessed a pastor is by his church size or yearly budgets, Jesus' broken body hanging alone on the cross of Calvary would once again leave us with a false conclusion about his favor with God. Okay? So, he um, referenced Solomon and, uh, and how... You know, basically, you know, public opinion is not the litmus test for truth. And we have to be very careful and we have to have discernment as far as who is right. So he says, when given a choice to discern truth among conflicting viewpoints, we must consider who is willing to metaphorically kill or remove the word of God in either form or meaning from our society. Only then will we know who is walking in truth. 
So he has a, a couple of examples of the leftist, left's willingness to separate the people of the, this nation from the Bible. In 1947, former Klansman Hugo Black reintroduced the phrase separation between church and state and federal law. Black is known historically as one of our most liberal Supreme Court judges. In 54, Democrat Senator Johnson introduced the Johnson Amendment, prohibiting 501c3 nonprofit organizations, which includes churches, from endorsing political uh, candidates. President Trump issued an executive order erasing those restrictions. In 63, uh, founder of American Atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare filed a lawsuit challenging the policy of Bible reading and prayer in public schools, leading the Supreme Court to rule that mandatory Bible reading and prayer was unconstitutional. In 73, a Democrat majority Supreme Court ruled in favor of Jane Roe, providing a framework for legalized abortion. A federal appeals court ruled ruled in 1995 that a junior high school student did not have her rights violated by a teacher who prevented her from writing a research paper on the life of Jesus. In 2008, the Democratic National Committee removed the name of God from all platform documents. In 2015, a Democrat majority Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage nationwide. A California school district introduced curriculum that required students to learn and memorize Muslim prayers. A Christian student who was enrolled in a master's degree program for counseling at Augusta State University was placed in a remediation plan due to concerns that she was deficient as an ability to be a multicultural competent counselor specifically to LGBTQ populations for her to uh, for her refusal to embrace such lifestyles as healthy. In 2019, a Democrat-led House committee moved to remove So Help Me God from committee oaths. In August of 2019, it was reported that a survey found over two-thirds of left-leaning college students were in favor of removing In God We Trust from national currency compared to only 6% of Republicans. And in 2020, hashtag cancel Christianity trended on Twitter by leftists calling for destruction of artwork and churches that depict God or Jesus as white. Like Solomon, the church must realize that a true mother would never call for the removal destruction, exemption, or replacement of the Word of God in the lives of the, of the people of this nation and around the world. You see, the power of the Word of God is terrifying to the godless. A unified church educated in, formation, uh, in the formation of this country and the founding documents is even scarier. scarier. Again, the Battle of Lexington began in Jonas Clark's church lawn with 70 of his congregation. If the citizens of the colonies thought for a second that they weren't fighting for a Christian nation, they would have never taken up arms against the British. I mean, that's a fact. They were here to form a Christian nation. While the church has been focused on adding members throughout through evangelism, we've lost the country. This should tell us that we need to focus on the gospel of the kingdom, which requires a discipling of nations, not just individuals. An example is Dallas, Texas. It was once, it might still be, the most evangelized city, but the least changed. Stephen Bannon recently said, Conservatives have consistently voted Republican elections, and we've lost this country because it's city by city, county by county, and state by state. That's where we need to focus. The church must shift its focus back to Jesus' original intent, and that is the ecclesia. Upon this revelation, this rock, I will build my ecclesia, which is a governmental body, not a religious institution. Just look it up in the original language. 
And as a governmental body, it requires that we engage in society and culture through urgent education, peaceful non-compliance, running for state and local government, and shifting back to the Great Commission, which is outlined in Matthew 28. Right before the Lord ascended, He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to go go therefore and make disciples of nations. We need to save nations. That's God views them just like he does people. And if a nation is a sheep nation, that nation will support the people of God, will not be actively hostile and against God, and will support uh, Israel. So recommended reading, um, The American Story, The Beginnings by David Barton and Tim Barton is a must. It goes against a lot through uh, original source documents, a lot of the um, lies and the myths that are being propagated about this nation. In fact, did you know that we bought the land from the Native Americans when we got here? We didn't take it from them. And the first one to pick a fight with us was King Philip. Look him up. And so it's a fabulous, absolutely fabulous book. Now, Don't forget, next week we're going to dive into the two crucial cases of January 6th and Rittenhouse. And uh, this is going to be a very, very important thing. But again, ask God, where is my place? Where am I at in this battle? What does that look like? And then you have to overcome being uncomfortable. You have to overcome your life not being what it looked like before in order to play your role in saving the United States of America. Peaceful non-compliance. Again, look up libertyfirst.org, uh, I believe is what it's called. Um, Chris Ann Hall, fabulous uh, work there. Remember that we make up two-thirds of America. There are more of us than there are of them. We just have to look, take back society's mountain strategically and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and more than likely that will be in the marketplace. And normally I don't promote stuff uh, on the hub, training.com, but I would highly recommend that you go to Church Shift, you do the training on the Ecclesia and the Marketplace especially, because that will help you a lot in understanding Jesus' original intent for the church and then the uh, uh, role that marketplace apostles play that are those of you uh the majority of people i mean if you're working you should be a marketplace apostle or minister uh, the role of the marketplace which is business and government and how we can actually uh, use those areas to expand the kingdom of god that's exactly what paul did and that's what we need to do but for today go uh, also over there and download uh Uh, Take Action, Save America. And we're going to end with a good news story. A 12-year-old boy uses Boy Scout know-how to rescue a lost couple and a wounded dog. It's the textbook beginning of a nightmare. Lost on a hiking trail with no water and injured dog too heavy to carry. Fortunately for the family of three, this story happened to literally run into a Boy Scout. 
For J.D., Amy and their dog Smokey, a two-mile hike had become a seven-mile disaster on the Waimanu Trail above Pearl City, Honolulu. Their phone was dead, and it was getting dark. That's when they came across 12-year-old David King and his mom, Christine. We asked, oh, do you need help? And they said, yeah. And they showed us that the dog's paws had some cuts on it, and when he would walk, it was just really painful. David was just three miles short of getting his 15-mile hike merit badge, but despite having done that and played a soccer match earlier in the day, David did what all Boy Scouts do. He lent a hand. First, he suggested they build a stretcher by using two links of wood and stringing their t-shirts across it, a technique David had learned from his Eagle Scout older brother. It was his idea to make the stretcher, said Christine. We didn't think it would work because we didn't think the dog would get onto the stretcher. Smokey was just happy to, and we just carried him out. Someone, presumably David, knew the way back to the parking lot as well, and so they all worked together, sometimes in twos and sometimes in fours, to get Smokey to safety, who, despite his injuries, occasionally hopped off to give some relief to the exhausted hikers. David would later later take the opportunity to tell KHON2 News, when you're off on a hike, a good way to be prepared is to imagine what could go wrong and plan for that. And that's from goodnewsnetwork.org. And that's a great way to end. I will uh, talk to you next week on January 6th, Kyle Rittenhouse. Until then, God bless America. Thank you.